Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, as we are every couple of days, because as we learned in the last show, this is not a daily broadcast, <laughs> something which was shocking for all of us. So, to start with Michael, rare positive note about the Irish government. Yeah, oh yes, yes, you're talking Hong Kong, are you? Hong Kong, we have pulled our extradition treaty with Hong Kong due to the new security laws, basically because their massive state overreach and enables China to grab anyone they want for saying anything negative about China anywhere in the world. And it just seemed like that would be a bad thing to uh, have an extradition treaty with a country that did that. It took us a while. A couple of countries got there ahead of us. But we did it. Yeah. And uh, congratulations on that, I suppose. I'm seeing people saying congratulations to Simon Coveney. I don't know. Does that mean that Simon was instrumental in the decision or because Simon happens to be there or whatever it is but if Simon was instrumental well done Simon well I suppose the the problem you have there is I I saw that as well and I was going to put something up and then thank the other ministers but your problem is is Thomas Byrne is European Affairs so not really his wheelhouse although he might have been involved in the discussion Colin Brophy is uh, Minister of State for Overseas Development and Diaspora so probably wouldn't have been involved also, the last time I heard Colin Brophy speak, he was doing a little bit of a, what do you mean there are concentration camps in China? That's ridiculous. Who could ever see such a thing happening? No, 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 no. Never mm-hmm. enough from our Chinese friends. Never. So unlikely to have come from him, which kind of leaves it to either Simon Coveney or the department itself. Now, I'm sure that this has been done fundamentally and principally from... Uh, an ethical standpoint. However, I have been told, and uh, and this has been over the last few months, in fact, as people noticed it, it's a slightly odd thing, that there have been substantial numbers, now what substantial numbers are in this context, I don't really know, of young, wealthy, successful Hong Kong entrepreneurs appearing in Dublin. Um, attracted by, I think, English language, common law culture, but uh, when asked also again, several times, have said the tax regime and are interested are in the process of setting up businesses here and using it as a hub for their... Well, two things. One, obviously they want to use it as a hub for European and then world, worldwide trading also. Uh, I actually got talking to two uh, two of these individuals of this type who were involved in for well, one involved in forex trading, one was uh, in another business, and they said that they thought it was their feeling that Hong Kong was basically finished, that the older people, maybe with more sunk capital, whatever were holding out hope that, you know, it wouldn't be too bad, that things could be manageable. But but we're talking here mostly about people in their late 20s into their mid-30s, very mobile, very sophisticated, very competent people. And they're looking at it and they, they, they have a sense that whatever Hong Kong was is gone, that China doesn't feel it needs Hong Kong in the same way as it did before, that Hong Kong, even as a, as a generator of... of of revenue of, as a cash cow, as a source of uh, a, a source of accessing the world on world markets, is simply not as important today. In the when you look at the, the so the global the global state of the Chinese economy, and they just it's also just an irritant. It's it's a reminder it's to that imperial Chinese mindset of the day that the white monkeys came in and enforced their dominion on the weak empire back in the 19th century and they just want to erase the dishonor of that but also because they just don't like these people going around being bolshy because you never know when people are bolshy in one part of the country it might affect people in another part of the country into being bolshy and you don't want that kind of thing happening so there may be an element where they said they, they that the government saying well you know, if we're going to get lots of people coming over here of that kind entrepreneurial people with maybe some wadges of cash and some capacities 
we want them to be able to come over here and not worry that they're going to be picked up by the guards in the morning and extradited to China. So there may be a practical issue going on here, I don't know, but I'm sure principally it was an ethical decision. Whatever reason it was made, it was a good decision and we applaud it. It was. I Just on the column on the, the Brophy thing, Michael, mm-hmm. I was, I was before we were talking about this, I was going back through some of the um, the transcripts of the debates that he's been involved in on China, because there actually have been a couple of them. Uh, he was in the Senate there on the 8th of the 10th, I think. But it was interesting what he was saying about Xinjiang, which is where we know these camps are. Yeah. And he was saying, well, you know, we've got to engage with Chinese authorities and convey our position on... But here's what he said about it to the House. He said, the House will recall that China has in recent years faced the threat of Islamic extremism including the horrendous attack on Kuming Railway Station in 2014, during which 31 civilians were brutally stabbed to death. When the Chinese government states that its actions in Xinjiang are in response to this threat, there's something behind it. Mm. Now, that is the briefing that the Chinese embassy is giving. Yeah. So, just interesting to have one of our ministers uh, come out with it. Well... Yes, it's the language and the framing of the story is very, very close to the language and the framing that would be if you were to ask the press secretary of the Chinese embassy what they thought of these things. It's coincidental that it should that a minister should have such, a, as you say, language and framing. But there you go. You know, there are opinions about everything, Gary, on all sides. And maybe on balance, the minister feels that there is unreasonable hostility to the Chinese government uh, because they, we don't fully appreciate the scale and the nature of the challenges that they face. Also, when he was discussing it and, and what we've heard about from Xinjiang and the videos and the now the documents that are being released showing different things like the campaign of sterilization and the camps and the forced labor. He refers to them as uh, reports, as allegations. I think we've slightly gone beyond that stage for the most part. There are now multiple people who are saying they were in the camps. There are state documents. Multiple news teams have gone in on the ground, including the AP. I think The Economist also went in there recently. Mm. New York Times... The Wall Street Journal, I think, has certainly reported on it. Yeah. Just interesting phrasing for a Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, worth reflecting on. Yes, I I think it is, just just to be sure of it. But anyway, mostly congratulations to the government. Um, Hopefully they will start responding to the answers I send them about uh, China and safeguards on human rights at this point. Mm-hmm. I suspect they won't. But you know, small steps, Michael. Baby steps. Baby steps. So, with the congratulations out of the way, <laughs> I think there's another congratulation uh, needed at this point, Michael. Yes. Kira Kelly is apparently now a member of the far right, which I find shocking as I never saw her at any of the meetings. God, I'm just trying to think, you know, uh, all of those meetings we had in in the back room in Donoghue's, where we had all of the Irish far right, alt right, and right adjacent gathered, uh, I don't remember her there. She certainly never bought her round. I would remember that. No, she didn't even come to any of the barbecues. <laughs> that would be funnier if it wasn't true. <laughs> the Irish right actually can fit in somebody's back garden and have a barbecue. But there you go. Yeah. Because we've been there and it was lovely. Yes, it's very odd, isn't it? Kira Kelly, of all people, because Kira, let's face it, has had pretty well all the right opinions. No, I want to say that I, I, I'm not, I, I'm being flippant. I don't think that Kira Kelly holds the opinions she holds because they happen to be fashionable or to be au courant. I think they are the opinions of Kira Kelly. They are her genuinely held beliefs um, that a number of them I do not share. She expresses them trenchantly sometimes. 
I have to say she's a pretty decent media performer. I mean, she's pretty good on it. But she has been a little bit of a heretic. In in relation to the lockdown, she has been, which I think is, is what caused her to be uh, called fair right in this instance. But these things have tended to snowball. So now other people are coming out and saying things which are arguably defamatory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it now seems like there's a big, big push to get her cancelled. So she has taken the very sensible step of removing herself from social media. Yes, and that is a, absolutely a sensible thing to do. But I, I'm fairly sure, I, I didn't check before we went on, I'd forgotten about it, but I am fairly sure that I saw at least one tweet which did actually refer to her as far right. Or it seemed, seemed to refer to her as far right. And I would have thought that was... Fairly close, is it? Is that would that be defamatory? It's not defamatory, anyway. I don't know. I, I I actually don't know. You might get it in as an honest opinion. Yeah, I don't think it's true. I kind of pegged Kira as maybe like soft left. I don't, I don't really know actually what her political views are, which I mean used to be a sign of a good journalist. But you know, there we go. I would have sort of said Filigale, you know, maybe liberal on the social issues, maybe sort of soft centre right on other stuff. Not a mad. There's a little touch of the libertarian about her at times, but I, I no, I, I wouldn't. I, I, if I was put to the pin of my collar, I, I would struggle to describe with confidence what I thought her party politics were. But I suppose part of the subject is the fact that she isn't Kira Kelly, she's Dr. Kira Kelly. And that makes her slightly more problematic, does it not? Well, a doctor coming out and saying that there may be alternatives to the lockdown or maybe we should consider other options or just not getting, but not putting on the green jersey, Michael. Yeah, and it's happening in the context when there are other doctors coming out and and being asked these questions and saying these bad things. We saw quite a decent debate, to be fair, to primetime, actually. RT didn't do a bad job the other day. You saw, uh, was it uh, Professor Lee, Professor John Lee, who was a retired professor of infectious diseases? He was being yeah. interviewed at uh, at distance, and he was giving out, giving his reasons. And what was pretty well, to my mind, the first time we actually had what I would call a proper debate on the subject in that there were people with opposing opinions expressing them and debating them at the same time, which is, I think, a far more fruitful way of doing it. And you had the professor and you had Dan O'Brien as well. Yeah. You had a wonderful sort of, here is the medical, here is the economic. So it was actually, it was, it was surprisingly good. Now, while I have a lot of time for Dan O'Brien, I think he's always, he's an interesting and uh, uh, and informative, and he's he's a, he's he's a good performer. Uh, there is always part of me that is because I'm old enough to remember the great, the great crash. That <laughs> Dan was more of an optimist in the days, and he 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 gained the sobriquet amongst the skeptics about the tiger as dangerous Dan. <laughs> and every time I see him, I, I I can't help but think of dangerous Dan eating cow pies. But yeah, it was. It was recently. But there we are. Kira has come out, and she's uh, and she's been basically, it seems like hounded off Twitter because she ha- she's a bit it's heterodox. Now, while it's unfortunate, the kind of abuse, personal or whatever, that she has herself received, it's kind of more to the point that it's a little bit worrying that to have an opinion about the lockdown and to question the rightness or the efficacy or the nature or the execution or whatever of it is immediately just dismissed. You can dismiss it now because they're just, it's far right. They're just one of those anti-masker people running around the centre of Dublin with groups of people who are described as far, and we, we saw, do you see, I, th- I think you probably saw, there was a story from the Garda Commissioner saying that he was concerned about the far right and invent you know, trying to destabilize structures of the state, which frankly, I did. I, I I read the Irish Times piece on it, and it described the anti-lockdown protest as far right in the middle of comments made by Drew Harris, which was an odd way of doing it because it gave the sense that Drew Harris had called the anti-lockdown protest far right, but didn't actually quote him saying that. So I I just out of curiosity uh, asked the guards about it. And the Garda press office refuses to comment on it. Yeah. So refused to confirm if he did actually say it. 
So I asked them for a transcript if they had one and was that an accurate representation of his views. So we'll see. But I'm curious about that. I talked to a couple of people who were at the last protest as observers, not participants, shall we say, but reasonable people. They're there out of curiosity and to maybe do a bit of reporting on it afterwards. And I said, you know what, this whole far right, they said, listen, yeah, there were people there who definitely would be from that very small elite, I don't know, I would say elite group, but that, shall we say, niche group of people in Ireland that you could describe as being the organised far right. But he said, the, the reality was it was an incredible mishmash of people. Many of the, all sorts of little groups and with different opinions, some on opinions on vaccines, some on opinions on fluoride, some on opinions on recent court cases. Some were there because of the rulings about uh, public worship. Some were there because they didn't believe in masks or the efficacy of masks. Some of them were there because their concerns about oh, just the the, the economics of it and civil liberties. This was not some kind of unified Nuremberg rally where everybody was there with one one voice and one objective. Uh, to describe it simply as just a, a bunch of far-rightists, is, I think it's, it's lazy if I'm going to be a, a, at the most charitable. It's very lazy, lazy reporting. We've discussed this before, that any protest you go to, you'll always have the fringe elements because they're most likely to protest. Yeah. Usually, I mean, I mean, there's many protests where they're the only people there. But when you start seeing hundreds or thousands of people turn up, they don't have the numbers to do that. They just don't. But the question of then when it becomes a protest which they were at to a protest that is now identified with them... Mm. To you know, a far right protest is an editorial decision or an ideological one. Mm-hmm. Assuming that the entire, like there are certain, I mean, if it is an explicitly political thing, it's a little bit easier. But for something like this, there's not really a political point to it, and there shouldn't be a political point to dissent. I find it worrying. I mean, God, maybe I'm just a worrywart, but when I look at these threads on social media where person after person after person just simply says, oh, I hope the guards beat shite out of them. Why didn't they use tear gas? I hope these people all get COVID and die, as I saw one person say. I say, many I saw expressed the hope that they they, 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 be, they they caught COVID. One I saw actually said, I hope they got COVID and die. Absolutely no sense at all that there is actually a constitutional right to in, to peacefully protest decisions are, are, of our political masters, which, you know, it's kind of important. I don't know. I've, I've taken a, a, I've publicly taken a strong pro-tear gassing of protesters approach. Um, as so, a, you know, I just... As a man who's <laughs> carefully not attending protests... Yeah, as a man who studiously avoids going to protests, tear gas away, boys. Yeah, get the cannon, get the water cannon out, get the dogs. Like, and like, don't half-ass it. Don't be like, you know, those things that aren't tear gas. No, proper down the line tear gas. But do you not think that partly what's th- this this attitude to these people and the attitude to Kira Kelly is in a sense, it's it's a manifestation of an anxiety ab- about possibly the efficacy, but certainly about the, the the potential for this lockdown to work because there's a sense that in the, I think both of us were saying maybe before that the first day or so of the lockdown, when you went around the streets, if you went into town, it was empty. I mean, there was a weird, eerie emptiness about the place. That is not the case this time. Now, of course, you could say people are more used to it. There's in the, there's in the same sense of shock about it. There are certainly more shops open. There's more more people are milling about. But we also hear anecdotally from our younger friends that students and younger people are simply not being as compliant as perhaps they were before. That they are they're socialising more. The house parties and stuff are going on, um, regardless of the messages that are coming out of government and and the media generally. I think there's a there's a there's an anxiety that we're going to do this, and I can understand. There's if you're somebody 
and you're doing it and you're doing all, all you can to obey the rules and you're being as compliant as you possibly can in because it is your genuinely help belief that this is how you're going to help control the spread of the virus and ultimately both save lives and save what's left of the economy that this is the way that if you see people who are not putting their the correct effort into it then you're going to be angry and you're going to be worried that you know that the, the whole thing is going to be pointless the efforts of everybody else is going to be made are going to end up being bootless because of the 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 actions of a small or even not so small group of uh, heedless people so i can understand but i think there's a lot there's definitely an anxiety i think for example you know this stuff about uh, essential and non-essential Yes, yeah. That certainly seems to be, that's, that's already become an issue. I hear today, I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it's true, but I'm told that today in the town here that both Tesco's and Dunstore's de clothing departments have been uh, cordoned off, as it were. I don't know if you saw Mal Senator Malcolm Byrne asked a question regarding this problem he said that you know you had small boutiques and menswear shops who were having to close but then the large multiples would, were able to stay open to sell clothes and was this fair i i don't know about you gary i understand the concerns and the anger and and the frustrations of the smaller shop that has to close but is closing, is, it, is going around closing as much as possible of everything, even that would be normally open? Is that, is that the right answer? Is that the, we're also surely getting into a, a debate which is going to be impossible to logically address, which is what is, what do we consider to be essential? Well, the problem here is that we're going into this weird situation where markets are effectively non-functional for a lot of companies. Yes. And a lot of instances. So now we have weird regulations, like you can sell that, but you can't sell that, even if it's there. Now, with the like of Aldi and Lidl, I would say a lot of their business involves the sale of what will now be classed as non-essentials. Yeah. And I, I would say there may be some knock-on there on food deliveries. So that'll be interesting. But it's... I don't know. I don't know what is the best solution here because Ismi and the other businesses do have a legitimate claim here in that they are being throttled. Yes. And they can't compete. Whereas these businesses are open for entirely other reasons and were able to sell these goods. So you could argue that there is there should be some sort of level playing field provision there. But we are way out of standard economics and standard regulatory approaches at this point. Because no one ever really went, well, what's appropriate if you shut down half of your economy? Yeah. I, I mean, it's only half the economy closed down, but still it is half the economy. I don't know. I just find the whole thing, it's, 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 we're getting into ridiculous. Tesco's can't sell socks. Socks are not essential. Uh, but what happens when we need socks? And people will need socks. Sometime in the next six weeks, I, my prediction is there will be people in Ireland who need socks. Socks are not essential, but vodka is essential. Wine is essential. Well, it must be because you can sell it. No, God, don't get me wrong. I am not in any way advocating that we should not be allowed to buy, buy vodka or wine. Very much not. Cake is essential. Biscuits are essential. Gelato. Gelato is essential. Basically, it seems to be anything you can eat is essential. So if there was a caviar shop in town, I don't think there is. But there are in lots of cities around Europe, there are little shops that just sell caviar. They presumably would be essential. I, yeah, I think the whole thing is just going to end up in a nonsense. I think it's not, well, what am I saying it's going to end up in nonsense? It is a nonsense already. If you can't get foie gras, wild boar pâté, and tiny squares of toast, Michael, it's not living. It's existing. That's all it is, Gary. Existing. Did you see that uh, a Hunter Biden sex tape has just dropped? 
<laughs> I was asked today, basically, what the hell is all this stuff about this Hunter Biden thing? And I kind of, I gave a rough outline. And I tried to be as, you know, impartial and reportery as I could be, saying, well, it is alleged. And the only people who have seen it are the guy who has the shop and the FBI. So nobody else has seen it. We don't know if the email, blah, 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 all this stuff. <laughs> but it has, as the story went on, the, it is just getting more and more ridiculous. And the comment at the end of the sort was basically, well, if this, any of this is true, well, why is it not off of the paper? Well, indeed, why isn't it? Yeah, it's, I just explained to the to the listener what has broken, the, the last or most recent bit to break in Huntergate. So a, uh, a website called GTV appears to have released this. No idea how they got it. No idea who they are. So um, GTV or GNews.org. They look like they're registered to a company in Delaware, Delaware called the uh, Sakura Media Group Inc. And that group owns a number of other media uh, entities. Uh-huh. I, I have no idea if this is a real thing, Michael, or who owns it or what it is. But what they've done is they have dropped um, a number of sex tapes from Hunter Biden, including a video of him measuring out what I believe is crack cocaine in a hotel. Yeah, but at the end of the day, this is just Hunter. This is not. This doesn't. This is not important. Well, you see, the problem here is that Hunter is alleged to have acted as a bridge to his father to become involved in businesses in China, Kazakhstan, and the Ukraine. Yes, and if you can make that connection stick, well, then that's a story and that may, in the last week, have an effect on the presidential. But Hunter having... Hunter, Hunter Biden taking crack cocaine is not news, Gary. No, I... And Hunter Biden frequenting dubious ladies and engaging in nefarious activities again it's not news this may be the first time we have art but it's not news and it's not joe i mean if joe was in the video as well at least that would be no so i it's it's difficult to tell if there's some unified force behind these releases or if this is just something they found and put out because the GOP and American politics in general is capable of the sort of multifaceted plan that Irish politics just can't do. No, no, probably not. So setting up or getting involved with a news site in Asia so that you can release things alleging that they are linked to a Chinese plot to control the president's son and therefore the president's entire family is compromised, which will then link in with later material you've released during the last week. Uh-huh. Absolutely something the GOP could do. Yes. I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening with this thing uh, or where this stuff came from, if it came from his laptop, if it came, if it's linked to the Chinese Communist Party and it's some sort of compromat that they had on uh, Hunter Biden, mm-hmm. or what's happening. I don't think anyone knows. But it's very strange and quite interesting, actually, at this point. We shall see, I, I, again, as I say, whether or not this ever goes. Now, a, on, on the actual connection to Joe Biden, a photo did come out today. And it's Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and a guy called um, Rakashev. Now, Rakashev is... A Kazakh oligarch. He is an alleged business partner of Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. So, Joe Biden rather famously said that he knew nothing about his son's business dealings and he was never involved in any of them. He never talked to any of them. So, there is a relatively low bar to show Joe Biden was new of anything. And that seems to be what's happening. There's been a ramp up of activity coming out trying to link Joe Biden to this. So it might just be the GOP. Yeah. Seems like a reasonable... Or somebody connected to the GOP, shall we say, if nothing else. But anyway, as I said, the Hunter Biden thing, maybe nothing, maybe something, God knows. I don't think anyone knows. And if anyone is going to find out, 
it'll probably be way after the election before we figure out the truth of it. Yes. But uh, someone is putting it out there, most likely the GOP. Although now, God knows. the Some of the messaging that went up when those videos appeared on um, online was interesting. Because some of the original people who shared it that I was able to find were Asian nationals. Sorry, they were Asian, but I couldn't figure out quite from where. Talking about how... They were talking about the CCP in a way that indicated that they considered themselves Chinese. Right. But not aligned with the CCP. But also talking in a way you wouldn't do if you were under the direct control of the CCP, if you were in their land. So there are only a couple of countries outside mainland China that have populations that uh, meet that definition. So it'll be interesting if this is not the GOP. It is, in fact, is a different government entirely. Or a, a little bit of a rogue element in a different government decide, going off and doing its own thing. Yes, uh, perhaps worried that Biden will attempt to uh, improve relations with China and therefore uh, strengthen China's hand in the sort of Pacific region. On a slightly, well, on a very different subject, Although, with China, China uh, has its rules, uh, and we seem to have uh, decided to imitate some of those rules in the context of COVID. I was wondering, uh, Gary, uh, off the top of your head, no, I won't ask you because it's not fair, but did you know that under the new COVID uh, restrictions now, a priest uh, could be fined or imprisoned or both for saying mass in public? I was just wondering to myself, how long is it since we since that was the law? Because that was the law in the country for quite some time, quite some time ago, and I don't think we ever. We I don't think anybody in, for uh, for for the last couple of hundred years ever thought to you know we'll bring that back someday. That whole that whole penal law thing that'll be that that's something we should go back to do. Oh, I don't know, Michael. I think there was a lot positive about the penal laws. You think? I suppose it's very British. It it depended very much on your own particular context, I suppose. And I mean, Michael, what were those people doing with that property? Yeah. Yeah. What were they doing? You know, in fairness, were they exploiting it to its fullest economic extent? Yeah, you're you're probably right. But I just think it's it's quite... uh, I don't know, does it say anything or does it say a lot about the state of Ireland today that with the exception, I think, of Wales, and in Wales it will only be for 14 days. We are the only country now in the world, par possibly North Korea, where the public saying of mass would get you in, could potentially get you into prison. I'm just curious, will we, do we have any priests out there that are going to say, well, okay, it's the joy for me. Uh not many in the Catholic Church. The evangelicals, on the other hand, might just do it. Yeah, there were two separate letters sent into the Taoiseach in the last couple of days. One from, the, I think, the Evangelical Alliance, another from another group of uh, Protestant pastors, 70 Protestant pastors went in yesterday, uh, asking the uh, the government to rethink this. It's not an extravagant uh, request, really, as far as we know. And this is Europe wide. There have the number of cases that are associated of uh, where contact or contagion has taken place in churches is infinitesimally small. You have bags and bags of social distancing. The churches were scrupulous regarding the numbers. I mean, I saw the church here in my own town. You had the uh, parish priest at the back of the church with his little clicker clicking people in and once the numbers were exceeded the doors were closed I mean I thought it was a hilarious I genuinely that was a hilariously funny thing where there was a, a priest was saying mass in the church I think like a private mass priests can say mass for themselves if it's a private mass as opposed to public mass in a church I think it was in Fox Rock 
and some of the parishioners were sneaking in and stealing mass as it were and the best of it was there was around eight or nine of them were were were, were caught they knew where the they knew where the security cameras were and you know like you know you know those caper movies where they they do this careful analysis of where the security cameras are and how they sweep so they they get themselves in the right position so they can't be spotted they had done they said they they'd managed to hide themselves in the porch in such a way that the security cameras didn't catch them. So they went in and they stole mass. They legally, illicitly attended mass. I like the uh, I like the image of a priest with a clicker just in front of the doors, and then when the number is reached, just closing them. Being like, "Kingdom of Heaven is closed. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Salvation will be available tomorrow, but not for not for today. Enough for you." But it is just... The salvation uh, quota has been reached. Yeah, it is a sign of the times. Yeah, the, the evangelicals uh, and the other Christian churches seem a little bit more proactive on this than uh, some of the Catholic. Well, I, the, the bishops have been making representations. A number of... Uh, look, I mean, Bishop Kevin Doran in Elfin and Bishop Brennan in Ferns also have made fairly star- strong statements about it. Yeah, the Archbishop maybe. of Dublin has talked about it. But I think the fact is, there's a very strong feeling. There's a, a, maybe a cultural divide here. Not, I, I don't think malice. I don't think ill will from the government. But they just don't see that it's church is that important. And I think that there's a failure there. I, I, I fail, and I don't know if it's an empathic failure or a, an imaginative failure. That it may not be important for them, but we constantly hear about you know mental health and well-being and all that. And I think they have to understand that for a proportion of the population, 30% of the population, perhaps certainly a significant number of people, it is very important, and it is enormously beneficial to them. I mean, at the level of their mental health and their well-being. I mean, just on the churches, Michael, there's making representation. And yes, I'm sure they did that. I'm sure they sent some very sternly worded letters. But they could just open the churches. Yes, they could just open the churches. And then and let the dice fall where they may. But the thing is, they want to be good citizens. And they want to be good citizens, or they want to be respectable citizens. I I don't want to be hard because remember, one of the principles of Catholic social teaching and Catholic ethics is that you have to constantly be aware of the the pub of the common good, public order, the common good is these are very important things in in, in the in Catholic ethics, and. In the context of the pandemic, what constitutes the common good is debatable. And there are people who will say, well, for the, for the sake of the common good, we are closing the churches. And therefore, there's a tension for them. You know, the prudence is a virtue. Temperance, virtue, but also courage by them is also a virtue. And maybe we've seen lots of prudence, but not so much courage. Now, I I should say, my hands up here, I have neither prudence nor courage. I'm simply standing outside a fallen sinner, observing and making comment, but not that I would for a minute be one of those people that would risk ending up in Mountjoy for the sake of a principle. Let nobody ever mistake me for one of those people. No, no, I'm, I'll have to do enough of that for both of us. Absolutely. And I want, I, I, I would ever, I would hope if I was ever caught by the kinds of people that wanted information, that they would understand immediately that I will tell them everything and no torture will be needed or required. In fact, that might be quite effective because then I can keep my strong, no squealing stance and not be shocked because you'll just give them all the information I'll just, anyway. Just go to me first. Yeah, in which case we can both be winners. Absolutely. And you can there, and I said, you, you can be there. I told them nothing. Maybe that's the key to keeping morally consistent, ensuring the morally compromised go first so you don't have to. That's the trick. You have mm. to make sure. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, the old joke, you know, if you're with a friend and you get chased by a bear, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to just run faster than your friend. 
it's a question of being getting the timing right and getting the order right. So when they come in, in the helicopters, make sure that they get to they question me first. We were talking last week about how, or maybe a couple of days, we were talking at some period anyway, because they all blur together, I don't know anymore, um, about George Lee and how he would be a fantastic snuff film narrator. Yeah. Because of the glee he takes in COVID-19 outbreaks. Lugubrious, Gary. Lugubrious is the word. Fergal Bowers from RTE yeah. had a, an article up on uh, Saturday, Saturday, yesterday. And it's not a bad article, by the way. But the first line of it, Michael, and it's just one line, one paragraph, the, the start of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The heading is virus will test our endurance. But the, the first line is all things in life can be taken from you. And in the end, they will be. <laughs> oh, God. This is a man. This is a man for whom life is all Lent and no Easter. <laughs> this is all Advent, and no Christmas. Oh, and Even I looked at that and I was like, Jesus Christ, Fergal, lighten it up. This is very much, this is a man for who is very much Good Friday and not Easter Sunday. Uh, I, that is so good. Remember, man, that thou art dust and unto dust thou shalt return. It's, oh, that. So that's, that, that's where Orty <laughs> is right now. God, that, that's like the beginning of a Russian short story, like Goggle or something, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> A parable, you know. But uh, it's succinct. <laughs> that is good stuff. Yeah. Um, listen, speak. Hmm? So uh, there's a there is a story. We 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 want good stories, good news stories. So I'm going to go in with a good news story now. And I don't suppose anybody will care, but it is a big story. It's a good news story. Sudan. Yes, yes, actually, this is the, the peace deal, is it? Yeah, it is. Sudan has agreed to a peace deal and normalization with the state of Israel. Now, Sudan, this is a, this is a move, a, a, another move up the ladder. The first two states to uh, agree were first the United Arab Emirates and then Bahrain. Now, both the Emirates and Bahrain, they're Gulf, they're small, they are historically inverted commas, moderate, they're Western orientated, they're very wealthy, they have long uh, good, long established and good relations with the United States, with Britain. Sudan is different. Sudan would, would traditionally have been seen as more of, on more, shall we, slightly, slightly the more, uh, let's roll Israel into the sea wing of the, uh, the Islamic world, of that part of the, uh, the globe. And Sudan, as we know, recently fought or engaged rather a nasty sectarian conflict, which has led to the division of the country, the, the, the Islamic North is separating from the Christian South. Anyway, Sudan has announced, and it is not, Gary, I, we are given to understand, this is not the last to come. No, Trump has said that there's another five countries looking to sign this peace deal, including Saudi Arabia which is going to be very bad news and very ill-received in Tehran. Yes. I remember we, we, maybe about a year or more ago, Michael, we were talking about the Iranian issue and how this offered Israel a generational chance to become accepted there because yeah. the other countries there want to counterbalance Iran's influence. Yeah. And so does Israel. So that has now given people the most blessed thing in all of geopolitics a common enemy. A common enemy which finally is not Israel. Well, yes, that's very important from Israel's perspective. Yeah. So this is this is a pretty... I mean, it was an impressive peace deal before. Yeah. It was the probably the, the greatest thing we've seen come out of this since Carter, uh, the Carter administration. But if they now they've got Sudan on, they're starting to go... If they can get Saudi Arabia onto this... That will be, uh, be an incredible achievement for peace in the region. Now, I did see I did see people who were like, well, what does it matter if you have a, a peace treaty between countries who aren't at war? To which I'd say, well, a lot of these countries don't think Israel should exist. So peace is uh, rather a step up, really. These countries were, a f you, you can call it, they, they were not at war. They weren't at hot war, but this was a, this was a cold war. 
these all of these countries were effectively at war with Israel. It was just a question of if and when that war would turn from a cold war to a hot war. If if this goes, I mean, I think he enough has happened already. But if this was to continue, and if Saudi was to come on board, I don't see how they cannot give him the Nobel Prize. I'm not saying that they will. I can perfectly imagine that they wouldn't. But really, really, he should be a shoe in. When you consider what they gave the Nobel Prize to President Obama for, but even I mean Carter won the Nobel Prize, wasn't it? It was for his peace deal. Yeah, well, yeah, it was Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat got. I think actually got the prize. I don't know what Sadat, but he was the yeah he he was there in the sort of in the middle, bringing the two together, and that was no okay. Egypt and Israel that was a big one, because Egypt is the big is well certainly is still very big, not as big as it was. But at the time, it was the sort of the, the great power. Nasser had been the great voice of Arab nationalism. The last, deal, the last part of this deal, the parts with the UAE and Bahrain, they were, they were the first states in that region to recognize Israel for nearly thirty years. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is a massive deal, largely because of I mean, there's massive implications for this, both in the amount of destabilization that that region has suffered, and the way that kind of ripples out into Europe and the wider world. But also because then it has consequences for Iran, it has consequences for Syria, that links it to Russia. It'll be very wide-ranging, assuming it holds up if Donald Trump loses the election. Yeah. Which is now the problem. That is now the problem. Because you get a historic peace deal, which seems to be driven entirely by the Trump administration and their willingness to do things in relation to Palestine that no other American administration has been willing to do. I mean, there's videos of John Kerry talking about uh, the peace process from a couple of years ago and just saying they would never do certain things. And Trump just went in and did them. And it turned out they worked. But you go back to an old administration, that stops, it all falls by the wayside, and the region goes back to chaos. Yeah, yes, it's like you said, for... Trump simply is willing to do things that more conventional, traditional politicians are not willing to do. Also, you suspect his uh, son-in-law, is it his son-in-law? Jared. You'd have to imagine he's fairly involved in this process. I know it was very close to his heart, and he is a close advisor. I do remember the, the mockery that Trump got when he said he was going to put his son-in-law over the process and people were like, he, he's no qualifications in this. He's, he, I mean, he's not even a fellow of a think tank. How can we trust him to do anything? I can't imagine. Can- and for three years, just constant mockery. And then they turn around with this. Now, he maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't involved in this, that maybe this was just Trump. But he was put in the position and within one presidential term, you've got a historic peace deal which kind of shits on the think tanks, really. You can imagine the embarrassment of not being even a fellow of a think tank, though. Could, how could you go outside and do your shopping? Oh, knowing that your neighbours are looking at you. Pointing! to themselves. What kind of a man is that? Yeah. I'll tell you, I wouldn't be able to go to Donnybrook Fair if I was like that. On, just to, before we close up, Michael, just a quick point on Fergal, Bowers and Ortie and the Apocalypse. Yes. We're, we are in level five. We were in level three. Then there was a ban on household gatherings before we moved to level five, wasn't there? Yes. So up to the 18th of October, 1,284 new cases that day. 19th of October, 1,031. 20th of October goes back to 1,200. Since then, it has fallen consistently. So on the 20th, it's 1,200. On the 21st, it's 1,100. On the 22nd, it's 1,000. On the 23rd, it is 785. And on the 24th, it was 847. Now, if that is a trend and not just a bit of oddity Mm -hmm. because of testing issues or something like that, Mm -hmm. what you're going to see over the next couple of days is the zero COVID people taking to TV and radio to explain how public health guidelines are working. Now, what they won't say, but they'll strongly imply it, is that the level five guidelines are working. However, 
with the lag that we were seeing in this, you would expect at least two weeks. Yes. Before you would see any impact. So if we see a reduction, and this continues over the next week, that does not say level five is working. It means the previous reductions, or the previous guidelines, were working. Doesn't say anything about level five. And the problem that creates now is if these numbers start falling, and they start falling dramatically, but before that impact can come from level five, people are going to start saying things like, maybe the lockdown wasn't needed. And that's going to be terribly embarrassing for everyone. Yeah, the, there's another 10 days. We'll look at the numbers for the next 10 days before we can really realistically start to talk about the level five having effect. We're, we're going to be looking at the level three effect or the wrapping up of the level three effect for around the next 10 days. That's... And I'm saying that that's because that's what I've been told by the people who are supposed to know about this kind of stuff. And we've been told that there is this rough lag of around 14 days that before we see the impact. Now, yes, you're going to say it's going to be a problem. Well, or is it? I don't... It's already, I mean, there are people speculating the real reason that we're having an 11.5 is because... The concern was the level three wasn't really they wanted level three but they felt that they couldn't get effectively level three unless they went to level five because people weren't taking level three seriously enough blah blah i don't know but it it'll i suppose gary it'll depend where the numbers are the, the other thing is the other possibility is that the zero crowd might come out and say look at level three we've achieved this if we stick with level five and extend it, not for six weeks, but for 12 weeks, and I have actually heard people suggest that, then we can actually achieve zero COVID. And that would be, that is the time to sort of get going and maybe look for a ticket to an alternative universe because it would just be impossible to live. Anyway, I, I suppose the, Before, there is a new... Yeah, there's a poll there. I mean, we don't. We have reports of the poll, but we have a. We don't have an absolute confirmation of it yet, do we? Red Sea have uh, have just come out with it, I believe. Okay. So, so Red Sea new poll from um, Business Post. Finnegale thirty seven up two. Yeah. Sinn Fein twenty seven no movement. Finnafall eleven up one. Well, big yeah. That's. Finally, the return that Michal Martin promised. Yeah, they, they, they've turned the corner. Independence, 8 minus 2. Green Party, 6, no movement. Labour Party, 3, no movement. Social Democrats, 3 minus 1. Solidarity, People for Profit, 2. Ain't 2, 2. Uh, other Party, 1, no movement on any of those. Undecided, 16%. Just a note, uh, and we've we've gone into this, but not for a while. These polls generally have about a 2.4 to 3% margin of error. Yeah. Margin of error is statistically, it's not uniform across the poll. It's at a, a center point. So when you go down to these small parties that are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5%, the margin of error is not 3%. It's, it's probably a fairly accurate measurement of these people. Mm-hmm. So that's just, just a... A note there, because you hear people be like, oh, the entire party is in the margin of error. Any of these could be, like, Aintu could be the size of the Green Party. Yeah. But no, they're probably pretty accurate at that point. It's when you get to... Aintu not doing too bad. Aintu, 2% there. They were 3% in the last poll. The previous was... Uh, that's This is Red Sea. I, well, the last one was um, Behavioural Attitudes, I think. And they were 3% in that. Could, well, you know, just with one with one TD, effectively, not many, few councillors around the state, and you're not doing too badly at all. I do like the fact that Fine Gael is going up at twice the rate of the people leading the government. <laughs> Despite being three times the size already. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. I think it speaks to the, what I was saying before we were both talking about it. The, since Leo has become tarnished, uh, He's having fabulous fun being leader of the opposition on one day and then the next day popping up as tarnished. <laughs> and Fine Gael are, it is the first time I've successfully seen Fine Gael do something like this, where they're, they're managing, so at least up to now, to, to juggle, where they can 
pop up as government types when it suits them and then pop up as non-government types when the narrative works the other way. They're a poor cut. In fair though, God lads, 11%. Fianna Fáil on 11%. In the government, Fianna Fáil Taoiseach, 11%. It's not great, is it? No. I was trying to work out there how many other parties you could add on to Fianna Fáil before hitting Fine Gael's numbers. And it's like playing Bop It. <laughs> well, yeah, you could get a good few in there. you get you get them all, basically, other than Sinn Féin, wouldn't you? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you, get the, you get the sort of Dems, Ain2, Labour, People Before Profit... You get them all. Yeah, you get you, you get all of them in there. <laughs> it's not funny really. You could get you could get them all in there and then Finnefall would still need to take 1% of the undecideds to meet Finnegale's numbers. <laughs> yeah, if you're a back if, I, you have to say if you're if you're a backbencher in Finnefall you're really not looking for a general election anytime soon. No, because the thing is, Fianna Fáil has a lot of candidates who are really strong locally. So they tend to, like, even if the party is doing badly, there are certain people you'd expect to take their seats. Yes. But at 11%, yeah. the party is now performing so poorly that it is basically an albatross. Yeah. People always say, oh, uh, politics is all local. It all depends on the local things. X, Y, and Z will not lose their seats. And that's true to a point. But... You can't book the weather on the day. And if the weather is bad for Fianna Fáil on the day, it will affect all of the two. It'll affect everybody. Now, the guys with the strong seats, if it's a moderate day, will still get in and they will end up probably with more seats, perhaps, than their vote would predict. However, if the weather turns out to be 11% kind of weather, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to see people, you're going to see seats being lost that nobody imagined could be lost. You're going to see, you're going to see constituencies with no Fianna Fáil TD that, that 20 years ago might have had two seats and looking for three or that kind of thing. Eamon O'Keefe might have to campaign. Eamon O'Keefe might actually have to campaign again. I mean, that is the end times. Yeah. Eamon O'Keefe might have to go to those islands who vote for him. <laughs> Stand in front of the statues they have of him. Like the return of Christ. In the old days, I, I don't know if it ever if it happens anymore. It may still happen on the islands. You used to get a certain number of uh, people that were still illiterate, you know? Or at least they would say they were illiterate. And what would happen in those circumstances, and this was this would be classic O'Keefe territory, and... and they would have to the the uh, the officer in the in the in the polling station would have to clear the polling station. You see, and then he would take he or she would take the ballot and would ask the uh, the voter to orally instruct him on who he wanted to vote for, and then he would mark the ballot for him. But <laughs> what they would this was actually it was all theatre. And what they would actually do was they would roar as loud as they could. So if you're on Inish man, you could be heard on Inish ear. Number one, Eamon O'Queefe, Fianna Fáil. So everybody standing around outside could actually hear them because they wouldn't have it said that they that they were in there sneaking around and wouldn't, so nobody would know who they're voting. I miss that kind of politics. It's all gone so very s s plain and serious and... God, it could be anywhere. But Eamon O'Keefe may actually have to go back out and get the lads to start roaring. No, I once had the great joy of sitting down with Eamon and him walking me through his constituency and where the votes were on different issues and where his competitors were. Eamon has a very solid understanding of his constituency, way beyond... What is normal. Yeah. Normal or acceptable. No, I mean... Other politicians have a fairly solid grasp of their constituency, but O'Keefe knows everything. It was wonderful, but in the very early days when he was a young man, uh, well, a younger man than now, he used to wear that long black coat in the style of his grandfather, and the, the glasses, I think, were similar. 
And there were stories, and I think there was one actually was caught on camera, where he entered into a a week a cottage somewhere in Connemara or somewhere, and there was an elderly lady in the corner sitting in in a chair where she had sat for a long time and not got up. He walked in, and in the gloom of the cottage, she looked up and screamed and jumped up. He's back! <laughs> Convinced that De Valera had finally risen again and was standing in Galway. Did she go with a revolver or was it a Fianna Fáil home? Oh, no, it was a Fianna Fáil home. It was, it was, all, it was all joy and it was joy and uh, joy and jubilation. Joy and u- unity all around. Anyway, Gary, I suppose we should, on that, on that happy note, we let her, we let the people out and to enjoy their Sundays insofar as they can. No brunches will be had today in nice establishments with books, fizz or and, and, you know, I, I think before we go, we should remind people that if you are uh, high level in Fidafal and you're looking for strategic help, we are available and we will provide our own copies of the I Ching. We will. For very reasonable money. Dollars on the penny. Perhaps. <laughs> okay. Another, have a good weekend. We'll be back on Wednesday. All the best. Bye-bye.